Just before he died, with the end in sight, Karl Marx made this statement. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Groucho Marx, on the other hand, when he was about to die, said, this is no way to live. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, Humphrey Bogart said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis right before he died. Kind of characteristic of Humphrey Bogart. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana singer, took his own life. He said, it's better to burn out than to fade away. There's something about having the end of your life in sight that causes you to dip into profundity, to try to say something meaningful, to encapsulate who you are or what you want other people to know. Another example of this might be William Wallace from Braveheart. He's about to go into battle. He doesn't actually die in that battle, but it's the same idea. He wants to impart to his troops in Scotland what's most important to motivate them, to be remembered by. He says, fight and we may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day for that one chance just to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And actually, in the movie at least, his last words were freedom, right? Because that's what he wanted to impart to the people who followed him. When we know that the end is near, that's when the truth comes to the surface, what you want people to know. You've ever heard of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? You might know his story. He was part of the Christian resistance to the Nazi regime. He had the option to go to America and save his life, but ultimately he chose not to do that. He ended up in a concentration camp, and he knew he was heading to the gallows. He took his pen to convey his last thoughts to a friend, his close friend. He says, How should one become arrogant over successes or shaken by one's failures when one shares in God's suffering in the life of this world? You understand what I mean, even when I put it so briefly. I am grateful that I have been allowed this insight, and I know that it is only on the path that I have finally taken that I was able to learn this. So I am thinking gratefully and with peace of mind about past as well as present things. May God lead us kindly through these times, but above all, may God lead us to himself. And then his last words as he went to the, I think it was, he was hung, I believe, um, he said this, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. The passage we're studying today, all 50 verses, captures this moment in Christ's life. He knows this is his last chance to address the public, the crowds. He's thinking deeply about what he's going to say. And so I'm going to invite us to do the same. In his last moments, his last opportunity to speak to the crowds, what did Christ want to convey? Because that's going to be not only important for them, it's going to be crucial for us. If he thought it was that most important thing to impart, then surely it's that for us as well. How we're going to examine this is in three parts. First, we need to set the context, because I've got 50 verses to deal with here. I've got to get some, some work done on those, because I want to cover it all, but not in the depth that I would like to. So we're going to start off by getting the context for where we're coming from here. We're going to set the scene, and then, kind of like Derek Webb's song, we're going to get into what I took as a, a theme from this passage, which is that the world sees things upside down. So we're going to talk about the upside-down world, and then we're going to finish by looking at the right-side-up kingdom. 
We're going to look at some of the features of the right-side-up kingdom that Christ gives us in this crucial speech. So we've been studying the book of John for a while now. And the first 11 chapters is sometimes called the book of signs because Jesus is having his ministry out in public. He's uh, healing people. He's turning water into wine. He's walking on water. And then the culmination of these signs was raising Lazarus from the dead. It's at this point in the book of John where we take a turn. This is where Jesus sets his eyes away from the crowd and toward the cross. You can hear the anguish in his heart as he even starts to address the crowds in this passage. For the next five chapters, uh, John 12 through John 17, Christ is not going to only address the crowd, which he does here, but he's going to bring in his disciples into the the, uh, upper room, and he's going to share the deepest thoughts to them, and we'll be enjoying those deep insights as well, because surely they're meaningful in even a more intimate way as he addressed his closest disciples. So that's where we're heading, but it's important to realize that Jesus now sees where this is going. To put this into perspective, it's the Passover feast. And John, we've already seen him do a Passover feast a couple times, but it's the culmination of the Jewish calendar. It's this most important time where sins are put onto the, the Passover lamb and the, the people who deserve judgment and death are passed over. About six days before that's going to happen, we have that first vignette we got to hear about where Jesus was actually in the house of the man he had raised from the dead, Lazarus. Lazarus siblings, Mary and Martha are in there, and this Mary, we get this, this same view of her once again that we've seen elsewhere in John. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening as Martha is bustling around. She has the posture that we should really adopt. Not so much bustling, but sitting and listening. And she does this beautiful, amazing thing. She takes this nard, which is a type of perfume, instead of just 300 denarii, that's a year's wages, everyone, and she uses it. She pours it on his feet. That's not what you do with expensive perfume. Now, whether she realized it in that moment or whether it was only through the Holy Spirit or her sensitivity to Christ's anguish that she sees beginning to build, she's doing an amazing thing. She's foreshadowing what this week is about to become just a week later. She's preparing him for his burial. John's not as explicit about that, but this is one of the accounts that's told in at least two of the other Gospels. And there it's clear. Jesus says... She's preparing me for my burial. Don't stop her and you have Judas with his sort of pragmatic perspective, even though it seems like something we might say, like, no, we need to serve the poor with this money. Of course, we can take a lesson from that. Sometimes our pragmatism gets in the way of our worshiping and responding to the Lord. Sometimes our extravagant gift doesn't need to be measured out in small ways to make sure that we maximize its efficiency. When the Lord is in front of us, we can give it all. I'd love to spend the whole time here on this passage and talk about how this interacts with the way we treat the marginalized and the vulnerable. But we'll just look at this for a moment for the feature that it has for us, which is pointing towards the cross and setting the stage for what Jesus is going to do. You also see this little vignette in there about how this changes or maybe amplifies the response of some of the leaders. At this moment, they see that the raising of Lazarus has upped the ante, And they want to not only kill Jesus because of this amazing miracle, they see people are following him. Now they want to kill Lazarus as well. They want to destroy the evidence so that people won't continue to follow Jesus and his movement that he's begun. This chapter 12 also includes another uh, very different type of foreshadowing of what's to come. It's what we would call the triumphal entry or um, Palm Sunday, 
this Sunday is not on the church calendar where we celebrate Palm Sunday, so I'm going to leave a lot of the meat of what we could learn from that passage for whoever's going to be teaching on that day, should they choose to, to dig in further and come back here to John 12. But I do want to set the stage for how this matters for Jesus' burial, because it shows what the crowd is thinking. Historians of this time talk about the crowds that would have come into Jerusalem that are coming in for this Passover feast. Josephus, a few years later, captured this number at an estimate of around 2 million in this teeny little city of Jerusalem. And there's different groups of this crowd here that are seeing Jesus. There's the people who are already in Jerusalem preparing. You've got the people who are coming there on their own pilgrimage just for their normal Passover. And the text also tells us that there's a group that has begun to, to follow Jesus more fervently because of this amazing miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. They're all together there, and they're waving these palm fronds, which to us is something that maybe you've experienced growing up in church, having the kids wave them. It's kind of a fun thing. But to the Jewish people at that time, it's, it was actually a nationalist symbol. They were looking towards Jesus and saying, this could this be, is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? Uh, a couple hundred years before that, I might have the date off on that, but there was a guy named uh, Joseph Maccabeus. He came through, and when he came into town, he came in on a conquering horse, and they, they waved the palm fronds. And so at this time, that was a tradition that had, be, had begun in Jerusalem, where they looked towards conquering, towards power, towards military rule, and they had the palm fronds in relation to that. So make no mistake, they're looking towards Jesus to say, This is the guy. This is who we're looking for. And we even see this a little bit later in the chapter. In verse 34, they give a little insight into what they were looking for as they were looking for the Messiah. They said, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So they're looking for not only um, a Savior uh, to come in and interact for a short period of time, but to change the course of history and to last forever. And so as they're looking at Jesus, they're saying, is this the guy, is he the one who is going to fulfill these prophecies that we've heard for so long? That's the, that's the stage that's set. And Jesus acknowledges that he knows what's about to happen here. There's a theme that runs throughout John about my time. The time has not yet come. I had the privilege to preach back on John 2, and that was where he was with his mother, and they said, you know, turn this water into wine. And he says, my time has not yet come in John 2, 4. My time is not an ambiguous thing here. It's well known by all the commentators. This is referring to his time on the cross, to his glorification, to his death. And so back in John 2 through John 11, Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come, but now... In John 12, he acknowledges it. He says, My t- the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In verse 23. And then again in verse 27, you can see this, his humanity interacting with the realization that what he knew was coming is now at his doorstep. He says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. That same theme emerges as he struggles in the garden later, sweating blood, where he's struggling, his soul is at anguish because he knows what he must do. He's at one with the Father, and he's going to to do what the Father has called him to do. So here we have this great crowd who's here to, to hear from Christ. And 
he knows what he needs to tell them. He knows where he's going. And when we think about what's going on in the mind of Christ here, we get this insight into the anguish he's experiencing, the trepidation about what's to come. But we also have a little bit more insight in this passage about how Jesus prepared for this speech. The crowd is expecting this grand speech to affirm what they're thinking for the military conquer. But Jesus, actually at the end of the passage, and maybe this is a good time for me to tell you, if you have a Bible, this would be a good day to open to John 12 because we're going to have everything on the screen. But you'll be able to get the context better. You'll be able to see when I move around in different parts more easily if you have it in front of you. So even if it's on your phone, no texting, but look on there. uh, And it'll help you to see the context of where these things lie together. Because to understand the themes that Jesus is bringing up, we need to weave in between some areas. Because he returns to themes at different times. Um, And so I'm actually going to go to verse 49. Because Jesus is talking about um, his... His father, and how that's really the source of where he gets this knowledge and what he wants to tell them. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So we have this insight into Jesus' humanity. He's feeling the fear and the trepidation of what's coming forward, but he's also connected to the Father. And so what he's saying is not spur the moment. It's something that he's been thinking about and agonizing over. And so that's the stage that's set for us as we hear about what Christ wants to tell us in his last chance to speak to this crowd. And ultimately what he's going to tell us is how we see things upside down. Um, this is the, the second part of what I, wanted, what I wanted to teach on today because we're going to draw from a few places in John 12 and then we're going to brainstorm together about other ways that we see the world upside down. So I'm going to get us started with the list I saw in John 12 and then you start thinking and you're going to interact and actually talk with me about ways that we're seeing the world upside down. Kind of the, the axioms, the accepted wisdom of our culture, of the world, of how we should live, of what the good life is. So in John 12, here's some of the things I see. I see that money creates power. You've got Judas with his money bag saying, you know, we could go out and give the poor this when Mary is actually the one who's commended for for honoring Jesus and putting the ointment on him at that time and preparing him for his burial. So even money creates power, and you see that Judas, even though he's saying the right things, was actually corrupted. He was actually trying to hang on to the money bag. So that's one of the things that our culture tells us. Money creates power. Um, You see the crowds, they're, they're following this wisdom of Find the conquering leader. Find the strongest one. Find the one who will make our country great again. Find the one who will go out and lead us in a way that destroys others. There's a certain wisdom at all times in our time now around the world that says, follow the strong leader. We need someone to protect us. There's another idea in there as well, which is kind of follow the bandwagon. Some of these people are are walking up and don't even know what's going on, but they join in the crowd as well probably. You've got this idea that whatever a lot of people are doing, I should do as well. And you have this idea that we've seen um, as people have demanded signs from Christ, of demanding the miraculous, of patronizing those who can do these fantastic things, not because of who they are, but because of this magic, because of the intrigue of it. And we see later that um, the, the Pharisees, the leaders at this time, have another wisdom that they're using, which is they want to retain power. They want to seek glory from men. That's what Christ, or actually the author John, criticizes them of as their hearts are hardened, that they're seeking glory from men, even though they believed they were more worried about what men said or losing their position in power. So those are some of the things I see in John, that this crowd thinks they have it right, they think they've got it figured out, 
but actually they're seeing the world upside down. It's kind of like what Derek Webb in the song that Michael sang for us was communicating. What looks like failure is success, but then in the chorus is where we really see the upside down thinking. I give myself to what looks like love. I sell myself for what feels like love. I pay to get what is not love. All just because I see things upside down. The name of that song is What Is Not Love. Pursuing things in the world that are not love is the mistake that is made. What do you experience in your lives? What is the the common wisdom of this upside down thinking of the world? Okay, so that our relationships can save us if we just find that perfect person, um, that all of our anxieties will be taken care of. It's that last thing to check off for some of us. What else? Yeah, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, too. You see other people getting all this stuff, and you feel pressure for that, or you think, that will make me happy. If I finally move into the house in L.A., I think we experience that crunch a lot because our houses and apartments are smaller than they would be somewhere else, and so it's kind of this anxiety we have. Um, or getting the cool new gear, the new iPhone, or whatever else. Probably the best way to put it, kind of like, I think the average mindset is like John Lennon's just got this place where there's no nothing above us, nothing below us, no borders, no nothing at all. Have this harmonic convergence all in one. I think that's the dominant mindset of the average person. That if you just kind of embrace the relativism, we're all one thing. Kind of like the the tolerance of like just accept everyone. Um, and that then it'll all work out. It's you intolerant people that I'm not tolerant of that are the problem. That's a big one in Los Angeles, especially the idea of fame. A lot of people move here from around the country because they are seeking that fame and that affirmation um, to, to, to make it. Yeah, exactly. Our performance and the way others view us becomes crucial in that, or whether we do well in our job, if we fail, then we think we're worthless. Okay, yeah, getting people to follow us is kind of what we're seeing here in the text even of that's kind of what people are, are seeking and then they're people that want to be the leaders like the Pharisees protect that at all costs, even you know, killing people apparently. Money creates security. Yeah, your bank account helps you sleep at night if it's at the right spot. If you have the three-month emergency fund in there or whatever, then I can rest. But if I don't have it, then I am filled with anxiety and I can't get peace. I think also just um, the idea of being a good person, a good person, good things to happen to you. Okay. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the, the relativism thing, too. Like, that's our highest goal, is if we're good. If everyone was good, then we'd all be good, and things would be taken care of. I'm actually going to come back to that a little bit later out of Jesus' uh, teaching. Yeah, I think fear is a huge one, even at this moment in history in our country. Fear has been used at different times to get people to act or respond, even if it's not in their best interest at times. Um, Yeah, fear controls a lot of people. Anybody else? A couple of things that that came to my mind is uh, family first. Uh, I see this sometimes where, you know, everyone else can worry about themselves as long as I take care of my family. It's like this version of selfishness that seems selfless, but ultimately is also selfish. That makes sense. Um, but basically, yeah, everyone else has to take care of themselves while I take care of my family. I had a friend that even basically told me that. He's like, I have to take care of mine, so I can't come over and, and help you. And I was like, okay. Um, there's uh, the idea of, of entitlement. You've earned it. Um, that you deserve this that I see out there. And there's this American idea of picking yourself up by the bootstraps. That's a narrative that might be a little bit upside down because it's totally based on our own merit and accomplishment. There's some truth to that, but I think that Christ would ultimately look at that and say that's an up, that upside down way of, of thinking about the world. Um, I think you guys covered some of the other ones that I was going to mention. So this is the mindset that we are being reinforced with daily in our culture. There's probably one or another of those narratives that sort of is sunk in, even underneath our own thinking in this room, where um, it creates fears for us or it creates our motivation to go out and try harder um, throughout our daily lives. Um, And I think what Christ is really doing here is he comes to this moment is wanting to upset that apple cart of saying basically the ways that you're seeing the world is upside down. And I think why that song, and we're going to transition out of talking about this right side up kingdom, I think what capturing about this song is how uh, it seemed like Derek Webb almost had this in mind, this passage in mind as he was um, writing this song. He even talks about crowds looking for um, a military ruler. He says, when what is powerful has not come to fight, it looks like you're going to war, but you lay down your life. And what looks like weakness can do anything. What looks like foolishness is understanding. And so I see Christ trying to draw us into letting go of our preconceptions of how the world is supposed to work and choosing something better, the right side of kingdom, the kingdom of God. Um, the concepts he uses are challenging. And so we're going to have to spend a little bit of time here. We could spend a lot more. Um, but because he brings up so many themes, I want to get them before you. And they're things that we can explore more maybe at another time. But one theme that he brings up that I want to bring before you is light and darkness, because this is something that the author John has kind of highlighted from Christ throughout his teaching, throughout the book. In John 1, he brings up this theme, and then in verse 35 here, he says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then at the end of his speech, he sort of uh, returns to the theme and says in verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I think this theme, this 
overarching idea in John is one that gets at the idea of how our conventional methods of seeing this world upside down really are darkness. They don't provide light and hope ultimately. I think we've experienced that as each of those ways of thinking have run into to walls. Maybe you've been successful and you've accomplished your goals and then discovered like so many billionaires have told us that it didn't fulfill them, that even achieving that highest level did not fulfill them. Or maybe you've been crushed by a relationship that you were depending on, someone who said they loved you and meant everything to you, and then they failed you, and now you're crushed, and you feel like you don't have meaning. These ways of thinking in the upside-down world ultimately leave us hopeless. And what Christ is saying is there's another way of thinking that's not darkness, it's light. And so as we look at the rest of the themes he brings up, they are to provide us with this light to a more enduring way of thinking about the world and of thinking about hope. And I like it also because he captures this certain urgency and this exigency of, of choosing him now. There's, um, there's a, a necessity with Christ, particularly in the moment that he's preaching, but I think it still applies to us because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. He says to this crowd, knowing he's going to the cross, I'm only going to be here a little while longer as the light, saying that he is the light, but it's something that we should be aware of too, that there is uh, an urgency for us that we shouldn't wait around We should cling to him, and we should go towards the light. Another theme that I see here is is a big part of actually John's um, theological musings after Jesus' speech, but it's crucial because it's what Christ is getting at as he he interacts with the people, um, and they don't respond. They stick to the kingdom of the world. They expect the conquering ruler. How John does this is by getting into... Um, Isaiah. It's the, the quotes that link back. It's actually Isaiah 53 is the, the verse that John is quoting. He says, Who has believed what he has then heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on and quotes something from Isaiah 6 as well. And I want to highlight this here because what John is trying to reveal to us from Christ's big speech is the way that our hearts have been hardened at times. So you have this crowd, and this is a theme that doesn't only appear in John 12, but in John 1 and throughout John, is that you have the Savior of the world right in front of everyone, and they're missing it. Maybe because they're connected to um, the patterns of thinking that they've been taught, but there's a further message here, and this is a really hard one, and so bear with me a little bit. Jesus was rejected by men... This is Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised, we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53 that John is quoting is one you're probably familiar if you've been to Easter services or Good Friday services, really, talking about the suffering servant. Isaiah, uh, predicting the future as a prophet, looked at this picture of a man who suffered in the place of others. In verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 53, it gets into that how, it, how the suffering servant works, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that he shall bear their inequities. From time immemorial, God had a plan. He put it out there in Isaiah 53 of how he was going to take the inequities of us all. It was through the suffering servant. It was through Christ. This was laid before the Jewish people. And yet, and yet, there was a hardness of heart. 
The whole book of Isaiah talks about this hardness of heart. Back in Isaiah 6, this idea is introduced. Isaiah is brought before the Lord and told he's going to be a prophet to everyone. But what God tells him is that no one is going to listen to him. No one is going to respond to Isaiah's ministry, but go out and do it anyway. God knows in advance, and he's in control of this hardness of heart. This is a hard teaching. You see it elsewhere. You see it with Pharaoh back in Exodus. The Jewish people, the Israelites, are are wanting to escape, and it looks like things are going to work, and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is discouraging in some ways. It makes us feel out of control. Are we pawns? Are we automatons? Do we just move around like chess pieces that God is doing? Is he laughing? How does this work for God to be in control of everything? If God is sovereign, is this bad news for us? But this is not the entirety of the counsel of Scripture. It's clear in Scripture that human beings are responsible for their actions. That human beings can bring downfall upon themselves. That human beings' sin brings bad consequences. That sin must be judged, and those who sin are held accountable. How does that work if God is in control and sovereign, but humans are held accountable? I don't know. You probably don't know. Tim Keller doesn't know if that makes you feel any better. That's not just me. (laughs) But the beauty is that if you embrace this doctrine, it's freeing. And it gives you the initiative to act and to live. Both are present also in our text, by the way. You have John talking about how God is hard in the hearts, harkening back to Isaiah. And then just a little bit later in, I think, verse 43... Talking about the Pharisees, it says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is language talking about their responsibility for their choice. Even though they believed in Christ on some level, they cared more about themselves and the stature they would lose. That's their choice, and John is assigning that responsibility to them. I think one of the reasons why we get stuck on this is because we treat it like a zero-sum game. We think, okay, so... God's sovereign. He's 100% in control. Okay, then that leaves us with nothing. That's 0% of control or responsibility for us. Okay, well, let's say uh, we have free will and therefore uh, we choose. So we have 100% and God has zero. And that's kind of weird if you think about God being able to interact with us because if we would be able to kind of trump him. And then we think, okay, well, maybe it's like 80% us and then 20% God. So like when we're about to screw it up, he like intervenes and fixes it and saves us. Okay. But then, what happens the rest of the time? He's out of control? Or maybe it's the other way, where God's usually in control, but we have the power to reject him and to take it away. None of those are satisfying math equations. They all leave us frustrated. So which is it? We're in control, or God's in control? He's sovereign, or we have free will? Tim Keller, I mentioned, answers this question by saying, totally. God is 100% control all the time, and we are 100% responsible for all of our choices all the time. 
Now, why is this good news for us? Well, first of all, we see this working out in Scripture where God is involved in these intricate details, these choices, these moments across time. Think of Joseph. Think of Jacob. These are guys who are involved in bad moments. Things seem like they're going wrong. They even make bad choices, and God turns them to good. The sovereign God of the universe turns them to good. And this is good news for us because it keeps us from two mistakes that we could make. We could make the mistake of saying, I feel so much pressure, I have so much anxiety because it all depends on me. If I screw things up, then all is lost. Or the other risk, if we took this automaton approach, is you completely give up initiative. You give up wanting to even care about the choices you make. Why even bother? If God's already mapped it all out and he's in control, then why even bother? I'm just going to mail it in. I don't need to have any responsibility. And yeah, whatever happens, happens. I'm checked out. The beauty of the doctrine and scripture is you get the best part of both of those. You have the initiative to go out there and act because we're responsible for our actions. You can screw up your life in some ways, but ultimately, God is in control. And that gives us comfort and hope. And this even comes down to how we interact with him. Did I choose God or did he choose me? Yes, totally. There's a famous hymn, not one that we normally sing because it's the type with the organs usually, but I'm sure someone's put it to guitar now. Um, But it goes like this. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that cannot be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. It's because he has chosen us that we can now choose him. It's through his initiative and then our choosing him that this beautiful, confusing, but ultimately liberating doctrine of Scripture comes into place. So this is what Jesus is talking about at this moment. This is what Jesus is bringing before these people, their rejection of him and this interplay that John wants to point out. This is how God works. And this is ultimately good news for us if we can embrace it. We're not going to be able to figure out we're not going to be able to tease out every little nuance and every little moment of how this works, but we can trust in the God of the universe that he does have it under control and that we are ultimately responsible. This is heavy, and it gets heavier. It gets heavier. Jesus not only says, you're fully responsible, and I've hardened people's hearts too, but he also says, judgment is coming. In his last speech before these people, He brings up judgment. He does say in verse 47 and 48, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So judgment is coming at the end of time. Christ will be the judge then. When he's coming now at this speech, is not the time for him to judge, he says, to judge others. But he puts the idea out there. Judgment. Now, why is judgment good news for us? It wouldn't be one of my Sundays if I didn't have an extended quote from somebody. So I have one from Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian from Croatia. And I put it up so you guys can grapple with this with me. Because this is, this is interesting, especially for us in Western culture that have been lived comfortable lives. Miroslav Volf in Exclusion Embrace says, In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. This is kind of what Keith was talking about. That's what people want. Just 
everyone to be happy, just imagine. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. He can't stand for violence, deception, and justice to exist. Miroslav Vol says, My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. That's us. To the person inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of, this, of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Whew. That was a lot, but let me see if I can get at the heart of this. Judgment is a good thing. The world would be lost if there wasn't a judgment of evil, there wasn't a judgment of violence, of deception, of lies, and of sin, we would not be satisfied with this world. The type of thing Keith was talking about of imagine all the people, just let's get along, would be heartbreaking. If you try to sell this to somebody who's experienced great injustices in their lives, it will feel wrong and God will not seem just. If you just tell them, well, God just loves. God just loves. So forget about that justice you think you want. There's a, a Polish poet who, who sort of bookends this idea. Um, his name is, I can't even pronounce it, but it's Czesław Milos. Uh, he wrote an essay called The Discrete Charms of Nihilism. And this gets at the idea from another direction on how religion and Christianity um, are a better way of looking at the world. I'll just quote it here. It says, and now we are witnessing a transformation. He's sort of responding to the, the idea of Religion being the opiate of the masses, that quote, if you've ever heard that, he says, a true opiate of the people is a belief in the nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. But all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable. So the poet is saying, essentially, that this sort of atheistic worldview gives license to people to do horrible things but religions point out that what we do matters. And we feel that when we've experienced injustice. It matters when sin comes into the world and someone is wronged. And Jesus, in this speech, is saying, you're looking at the world upside down if you think injustice doesn't matter. It matters and it will be judged. <clears throat> what is wrong will be made right. The God of the universe is going to fix these injustices. So how? How does he do it? Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. So Jesus says in the future there will be judgment. But a few verses earlier, speaking to the crowd, he says, now is the judgment of this world. The next verse after that says... 
or the second half of the verse says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Judgment was rained down upon Christ just days later. The injustices that needed to be righted were righted by God by pouring out His justice, not on you, not on the one who, who deserves it, but upon Christ. If you've experienced injustice in your life, it has been made right. God has set the scales right by bringing his judgment down upon Christ instead of us. That's the truth if you're a believer. That's the truth that Christianity celebrates is that you deserved to have the justice brought down on you, but it was brought down on Christ instead. That's seeing the right side up kingdom. That's seeing how God could somehow be perfectly just and loving at the same time. That's seeing the right side up kingdom. How does God do this? Verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So this is John doing his clever double entendre stuff. He's saying Christ is being lifted up on a cross, physically. But he's also saying this is the fullest picture of God's glory, is the moment where Christ is put up on the cross. You could argue that verse 32 is that culmination in the book of John of his message. This is what Tripp was talking about last week. It's not for Lazarus being raised. That's not the end of the story. It's God's glory that is most important. And the right side up kingdom says, the moment when glory is most perfectly realized, most fully realized, is on the cross itself. It's seeing God's plan from the beginning of time, that interplay of God's sovereignty and human choice being brought down in this perfect moment where mercy and justice are satisfied by pouring out the wrath on Christ. And it says that he will draw all people to himself. You can think back into verse, I think it's 21 here, when the Greeks are approaching Christ. This was God's plan from the beginning that the show people, the Jews that have been pointing people towards God all this time, now in Christ, it's not only the Jews who are being brought in. Christ is saying, I will draw all people to myself. This is God's plan of how he was going to accomplish this. It was through this. And he refers to himself. Um, it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's using this Messianic language. You could go back and look in, in Daniel 7. This is a term that's used, the Son of Man, which actually refers to God refers to the one who would come, to the Messiah. And Jesus says, it's for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came down from heaven, I have glorified it, so everything in the past that he's done has glorified him, and I will glorify it again. That's this moment on the cross where the glory is most fully seen. And they missed it. And they missed it. The final picture, the feature of the right set of kingdom I want to draw you to is this metaphor, this agricultural metaphor that Christ uses. About how a seed must die to bear fruit. How does this work? A mustard seed, one to two millimeters, teeny tiny. If you were to leave it on a shelf, it would stay one to two millimeters forever. It would just lay dormant. 
its life force would not be activated. The way that you cause a seed to grow and to bear fruit is by planting it into the ground. And what happens when you plant a seed into the ground? The seed dies. The soils, the compounds around it decompose the shell which is locked in that life force. And it takes unleashing that life force for it to grow into what a mustard tree can become. 20, 30 feet tall, 20, 30 feet wide in its span. And then that tree can drop seeds which can expand and grow and bear more fruit. This is the picture of what Christ is saying needs to happen with him. How does he bear his fruit? How does the culmination of God's plan for people function? The shell of his life, of his incarnation, needs to die on the cross so that the life force, life force in his resurrection can be unleashed and bear much fruit, which we've seen over history. Christ dying on the cross, he had a movement going here of people that were not listening to him, but over history we've seen that by him dying and the life force being Unleashed as he resurrected, the world has been changed. The force of Christianity has gone around the globe and people have been transformed. And as a parting thought for us, this is really the transformation we need to make. If we keep our minds locked into the upside down world, we're essentially staying as a seed, sitting on the shelf. Our life force, our power will not be released. We will not see the fruits released because we're going to be living in fear or we're going to be striving for something else rather than allowing the power of God planted in the germ within us that can grow into this powerful fruit. It's this, this strange idea of whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you choose to remain the seed... You lose your life. You stay combined in this teeny little package. But if you let that shell of these hopes and expectations that we live in, that we're constrained by daily, if you let that melt away and let that, the shell go, now you can be unleashed and the fruit can be unleashed. And we can sing and rejoice with what Derek Webb realized in that song that we don't need to continue to see things upside down. We can now see through to the truth and the power that was made by Christ when he chose to die. What looks like torture is a time to rejoice, he tells us. What sounds like thunder is a comforting voice. And that reminded me of this passage where God's voice, one of the three times when it intervenes into the crowds and tells Jesus, I have glorified you and I will glorify you. Sound like thunder to the crowd, but it gave them a comforting voice if they understood it. Derek Webb says, when what is beautiful looks broken and crushed, that's Christ on the cross. And here we are saying, I don't know you, but he's saying, it is finished. On the cross, Christ says, it is finished. And so now we can experience that same fruitfulness by doing the same by not trying to hold on to our lives, but instead leaning into eternal life. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the words that Jesus chose to leave with this crowd right before the Passover week, knowing where he was going, knowing he was going to the cross. I pray that his words would penetrate our hearts so we could release that shell and live in the right-side-up kingdom and let go of the upside-down world. 
Thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.